Chapter 10 from Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, Chapter 10. The conspirators had good reason to sound the note of alarm and show symptoms of dismay at the beginning of the cabinet regime on December 31, 1860. Henceforth, the sway they had exercised over President Buchanan would be, to a great extent, lost to them. Hitherto, not alone in shaping a policy of non-coercion and preventing reinforcements, but in numerous minor matters as well, the complicity of Cobb, Floyd, and Thompson had enabled them to turn the varied agencies of the government against its own life, while active caucuses to inaugurate rebellion had been going on in at least three of the executive departments at Washington. Floyd especially lost no opportunity to favor the conspirators. He sold the Virginia Board of Army Commissioners 5,000 muskets, delivered 10,000 others from the Lelier Arsenal, New York, to an agent of South Carolina, and still 5,000 others from the Baton Rouge Arsenal to the governor of Alabama. He ordered advance quotas of arms to a number of southern states. He sent a government inspector to inspect a purchase of arms for the governor of Mississippi. He allowed Virginia to have a model musket made at the Springfield Armory, to use and take copies of government patterns, drawings, machines, tools, etc., at Springfield and Harper's Ferry, and arranged to have the Washington Navy Yard manufacture a battery of howitzers and a lot of fuses for the same state. He furnished Senator Uley a list of Army appointees from Florida. He sent Colonel Hardy to drill and review a camp of instruction for Governor Letcher of Virginia, and a little later gave him leave of absence practically to go into the service of the rebellion under the state of Georgia. He acquiesced in the acceptance of a militia volunteer guard to surround and ostensibly protect the Charleston arsenal, which guard, acting doubtless upon the original design, soon seized and held it for South Carolina. On the day of the Charleston secession ordinance, December 20, without the knowledge of the president, he ordered the transfer from the Pittsburgh arsenal to the southern coast, where they might be readily seized, of 123 cannon. This, on the pretense of arming the fort at Ship Island, not yet completed, and the fort at Galveston, not yet begun. In this latter enterprise, however, he overshot his mark. Columbiads and 32-pounders cannot be secretly moved, and before the order was many days old, the president received emphatic telegraphic protests against it from prominent Pittsburgh citizens, a warning from his own state he did not feel at liberty to disregard. While Floyd, openly professing loyalty, was thus covertly playing into the hands of secession, his two colleagues were similarly busy. Thompson deemed it consistent with his government duties to go personally to Raleigh as a commissioner of the state of Mississippi to induce the state of North Carolina to secede, and a few days later to publish an open letter in the same behalf. 
Cobb had likewise employed his official time in writing a six-column secession address, finished and dated two days before his resignation, and printed a few days after. Under the new dispensation, these practices instantly came to an end. For the moment, Mr. Buchanan was in a patriotic mood, and under the urgent solicitations of Black, Holt, and Stanton, yield consent to a number of measures he had for two months obstinately resisted. For the first time since his arrival in Washington, General Scott was permitted to notify commanders of forts and garrisons to be on the alert against surprise, and though this admonition came too late to inspirit and reassure many a wavering officer, it had the direct effect of saving one of the most important military posts in the Gulf. Reinforcements were resolved upon. The policy of defending the national capital was, on Holt's proposal, discussed and adopted. At least one member of the cabinet placed himself in confidential communication with the leading Republicans and Unionists in Congress, and counsel and warning in behalf of the government were freely interchanged and faithfully observed. Secessionists began to leave the departments, and conspirators no longer exclusively patrolled the corridors and antechambers of the executive mansion. Loyal men might again grasp the president's hand, and by cheering words nerve his feeble courage and despairing faith. Preeminent in his opportunities and services at this critical juncture was the new Secretary of War, ad interim, Joseph Holt of Kentucky. He had been a lifelong Democrat and a stubborn partisan. As postmaster general, and in the earlier phases of the disaffection, he had perhaps been negligent in submitting without more active protest to the absurd doctrine of non-coercion. But now placed at the head of the War Department, and fully roused to the designs of the conspiracy, he made the most of the remaining opportunities for defense. Under his administration, the War Department was no longer a bureau of insurrection. Plots and plans of arsenals and forts and reports of their armament and supplies were refused to conspiring members and senators. The issue of advanced quotas of arms to disloyal governors was discontinued. The practice of selling government arms was abandoned. Floyd's order to send the Pittsburgh cannon south was promptly countermanded. The military precautions of General Scott were adopted and as rapidly as possible carried out. Above all, his moderate firmness in guiding the weak and vacillating will of President Buchanan was most opportune. It was soon put to the test. One of Mr. Holt's first acts was to revoke a piece of gross favoritism which Floyd had ordered to please a prominent secession senator. The senator flew into a rage and wrote a curt note to the president asking if this was his with his approbation. The president, undecided as usual, sent for Mr. Holt and on his entering the executive chamber handed him the note. Holt read it in his presence and immediately said, Mr. President, I think we have had enough of this sort of thing. This sounds altogether too much like the crack of the slave driver's whip. It is a piece of absolute insolence in him to ask such a question. Of course, I understand that everything I do is by your authority. Every act I do and every order I give is for you alone and not for myself. 
I am but your agent and officer, and exercise no power or authority of my own whatever. This is a note which he had no right to address to you. Certainly, said Mr. Buchanan, I think so too, and I will say so to him. Mr. President, replied Holt, I must ask you to do more. I must ask you to address him a note saying without explanation that this is your own order. For, Mr. President, you know it is that, or it is nothing. Mr. Buchanan did it, and thereafter there was one fire-eater less haunting the presidential antechambers. Braced up by such resolute advice, the president held tolerably firm, and the cabinet regime was gradually consolidated. It formed originally only a minority of the cabinet, Black, Holt, and Stanton, Tusi, though loyal, being scarcely a positive factor in such emergencies. The affair of the Star of the West disclosed the act of treachery of Thompson and drove him out January 8th no successor being nominated for the interior department to the end of the presidential term. The imperative representations of New York capitalists to Mr. Buchanan that they would furnish the government no more money unless he would consent to put a loyal secretary in the Treasury Department also brought about the resignation on January 9 of Philip F. Thomas, Cobb's successor, a decided though more quiet secessionist. On January 11, the Union element received a strong and valuable accession in the appointment of John A. Dix of New York as Secretary of the Treasury. He had been a reactionary Democrat and had publicly justified the discontent of the South as late as December 15. Since that date, however, the Charleston Secession Ordinance, the Sumter Incident, and the firing on the Star of the West had awakened him to a truer perception of the crisis. Henceforth, he knew but one duty, to oppose rebellion, and as Secretary of the Treasury, he lent his earnest zeal to the service of the Union. A few weeks later, he gave utterance to the most stirring battle cry of this exciting period, telegraphing to one of his revenue officials, if anyone attempts to haul down the American flag, shoot him on the spot. We have already seen how the cabinet regime planned and dispatched the expedition in the Star of the West. Acting under the assumption of success, the president had, on January 3, nominated a new collector for Charleston Harbor, a citizen of Pennsylvania, prepared at every personal risk to do his duty. It was a praiseworthy assertion of authority and remains a valuable precedent though by the failure of the expedition his confirmation was rendered useless. Three ships of war were ordered to Pensacola to protect the navy yard there, and a little later a company of regulars was dispatched in the sloop of war Brooklyn to reinforce Fort Pickens at the same place, an expedition which connects itself with other episodes to be more particularly noticed hereafter. General Scott had vainly urged upon Floyd the reinforcement of the two great national forts at the extreme southern point of Florida. There is only a feeble company at Key West, he wrote, for the defense of Fort Taylor, and not a soldier in Fort Jefferson to resist a handful of filibusters or a rowboat of pirates. Repeated to the new cabinet, this suggestion was quickly heeded. By the aid of Secretary Holt, a strong and loyal man, I obtained permission, January 4, 
to send succor to the feeble garrison of Fort Taylor, Key West, and at the same time accompany Major Arnold's from Boston to occupy Fort Jefferson, Tortugas Island. If this company had been three days later, the fort would have been preoccupied by Floridians. It is known the rebels had their eyes upon those powerful forts which govern the commerce of the Mexican Gulf as Gibraltar and Malta govern that of the Mediterranean. With forts Jefferson and Taylor, the rebels might have purchased an early European recognition. With the rising excitement came multiplied calls for military protection. The superintendent of the arsenal at Harper's Ferry wrote that he had reason to apprehend an assault. A picked company of 68 men was immediately ordered there from Carlisle Barracks. So, too, in consequence of various warnings, a company of recruits was sent to reinforce Fort McHenry at Baltimore, others to Fort Delaware, and defensive preparations were begun at Fort Monroe. Tidings also came of insurrectionary designs upon the arsenal at St. Louis, Missouri. Recognizing at once the value of every precaution in that quarter, the officer commanding the Department of the West received from General Scott very explicit orders on the 26th of January. That important depot contained at the time 60,000 stands of improved arms, one and a half millions of ball cartridges, and 90,000 pounds of powder, several field pieces and siege guns, and various supplies, all entirely unprotected. The officer in immediate charge was, there is reason to suspect, then meditating its surrender to the conspiring state authorities. Obeying the urgent instructions of the general-in-chief, General Harney rapidly concentrated troops until by the 19th of February there were nearly 500 men, regulars and recruits, at the arsenal. Among these, it is interesting to note, were Captain Nathaniel Lyon and his company. His presence proved invaluable in ensuring its final safety, and a few months later he rendered conspicuous service to the Union in the unfolding drama of civil war. More important, however, than any of the foregoing were certain combined measures to secure the peace and safety of Washington City, namely the enlistment and organization of the volunteer militia of the District of Columbia, the concentration at the national capital of all the regular troops which could be spared, and the appointment of a congressional committee of investigation. In the early days of January 1861, there was universal excitement and alarm in Washington. The conspiracy had already made gigantic strides, and popular apprehension outstripped it. The signs of revolution were multiplying. The rash action of South Carolina had become contagious. States were seceding. Delegations were retiring from Congress with ostentation. Forts, arsenals, and custom houses in the South were being seized. Army and Navy officers of Southern birth and kinship were resigning to join the rebellion. On the other hand, these movements produced their inevitable counterpart in an eager awakening, an increased vigilance, and a sterner patriotic determination among the people of the northern states. The national capital was the natural focus of all this excitement. Here were the representatives of the whole land, daily congressional debates, nightly caucuses of both parties, 
an unusual congregation of prominent politicians to seek or render information rumor with her busy tongue and intrigue with her secret mask on the whole washington was loyal from prudence and interest but disloyal through personal association and the attraction of social influence for many years the cotton magnates had given the political tone in congress while their wives and daughters held sway in society for the moment the capital seemed to lean towards secession truculent harangues in congress were applauded from the well-filled galleries and the most daring of the fire-eaters were feasted and flattered so strong was the southern drift of local sentiment that the federal city began to be confidently looked upon by the conspirators as the prospective capital of a southern confederacy nothing seemed wanting to the early consummation of such a scheme but the secession of virginia and maryland of which the signs were becoming only too abundant and reasoning from this to plausible consequences the coolest heads began to fear a popular outbreak to seize upon the buildings and archives of the government and as a final result forcibly to prevent the inauguration of the president-elect such was the state of things when the cabinet regime came into power and this danger formed the subject of their earliest discussions the president affected not to share these apprehensions nevertheless he acknowledged his duty and purpose to preserve the peace and authorize the necessary precautions on the ninth of january colonel charles p stone chosen for that duty by general scott submitted a memorandum in which he sketched a plan for the defense of washington which was adopted and under which colonel stone was appointed inspector general and ordered to organize and drill the militia of the district of columbia this duty he faithfully discharged and on the fifth of february following reported the existence of some fourteen volunteer companies constituting a total of nine hundred and twenty five men which can be at once called into service adding also the number of volunteers for service can be doubled within seven days with proper facilities these volunteers distinctly avowed union sentiments and enlisted to serve and defend the government colonel stone fully depended upon them and their enrollment gave great support to the sentiment of loyalty in the community not underrating either the moral or military aid of raw levies of militia general scott was nevertheless too experienced a soldier to rely exclusively upon them in an emergency he therefore obtained the president's consent to concentrate at the capital available regular forces to the number of eight companies a total of about four hundred and eighty men comprising four companies of artillery acting as infantry three companies of horse artillery or flying artillery and a company of sappers and miners very superior soldiers from west point ordinarily employed there to illustrate practical engineering it was a difficult matter to scrape together this little force even for so vital a service there were threats and dangers in all directions i was opposed to stripping the seaboard so extensively of troops as it has been stripped of them i did not think it was necessary said the general though these troops were not drawn off from any exposed frontier i have brought three companies from kansas one company has been brought from plattsburg in the state of new york 
A company that was driven out of the arsenal at Baton Rouge will be here, a company from the arsenal at Augusta, Georgia, and we bring two companies from West Point, making eight companies in all. With these regulars, the general felt secure. I regarded the local militia as insufficient to meet any serious danger, said he. Under a shower of brickbats and stones, you can rarely prevent militia from firing. You cannot prevent any new troops from doing so, whether you call them regulars or militia. I do not like to deal in important cases with men who cannot be relied upon to stand and wait for orders, whereas with these companies he thought he could perhaps go through scenes of extreme peril and not fire a gun or shed a drop of blood. Edwin M. Stanton, appointed Attorney General on the 20th of December, was, with his ardent and positive nature, one of the most energetic and uncompromising unionists in the cabinet. For him, the expulsion of Floyd, the reinforcement of Sumter, and the other military precautions hastily ordered were not sufficient. Chafing under the President's painful tardiness, he turned to Congress as a means for exposing and thwarting the intrigues of the conspirators. His presence in the cabinet at the date of the South Carolina secession, the Sumter transfer, the commissioner's visit, and his prominent participation in affairs since the cabinet crisis had unveiled to him the most searching official and confidential view possible to be obtained. He realized fully how narrowly the president had escaped the disgrace of ordering Anderson back to Moultrie, and how seriously he had compromised his dignity and the authority of the nation in even unofficially receiving the rebel commissioners. He evidently had no abiding faith in the president's firmness, sacrificing his party attachments to the paramount demands of national safety he now placed himself in confidential correspondence with republican leaders in congress giving and receiving advice as to the best means of preserving the government the eighth day of january being a patriotic anniversary was chosen by mr buchanan to address congress in the special message heretofore quoted transmitted to that body on the ninth as before it contained a characteristic mixture of true and false logic of hopeful assertion of purpose and of shirking excuse declaring in one breath his intention to collect the public revenues and protect the public property he avowed in the next a virtual abdication of all power and duty commending the existing revolution to congress and asserting on them and on them alone rests the responsibility in his annual message december three he had advocated the recognition and protection of property and slaves in all the common territories throughout their territorial existence from this extreme southern demand he now so far receded as to recommend a compromise by letting the North have exclusive control of the territory above a certain line, and to give Southern institutions protection below that line. This state paper is cited here to notice another point. It submitted without comment the late correspondence between the President and the rebel commissioners. No sooner had this special message been read in the House than Mr. Howard of Michigan arose and offered a resolution to appoint a committee of five to make immediate inquiry whether any executive officer of the United States has been or is now treating or holding communication 
with any person or persons concerning the surrender of any forts, fortresses, or public property of the United States. Whether any officer of this government has at any time entered into any pledge, agreement, or understanding with any person or persons not to send any reinforcements to the forts of the United States in the harbor of Charleston, etc., sundry other energetic investigations were also included. Such proposals are ordinarily mere partisan maneuvers, but this one had a deeper significance. Confidence in Mr. Buchanan was utterly gone, and this resolution, so pointedly questioning the President's dealings with treason, was immediately passed by more than a two-thirds vote. Republicans, Douglas Democrats, and Southern conservatives uniting in its support, showing the most hopeful reaction against the conspiracy yet manifested by either House of Congress. The committee was appointed, and Mr. Howard, an able and prudent man, made chairman. He has left us an interesting history of its origin and purpose. That committee was raised at the request of loyal members of the cabinet. The resolutions came from them and were placed in my hands with a request that I would offer them and thus become, if they should pass, chairman of the committee. At first, I refused to assume so fearful a responsibility, but being urged to do so by members and senators, I at last consented on condition that the speaker would allow me to nominate two members of the committee. I selected Mr. Dawes of Massachusetts and Mr. Reynolds of New York. Mr. Reynolds was elected as a Democrat, but he was true as steel and a good lawyer. I do not know that Mr. Stanton wrote the resolutions creating the committee. I did not see him write them. I never heard him say he wrote them. It would be easier, however, to persuade me that Mr. Jefferson did not write the Declaration of Independence than that Mr. Stanton did not write those resolutions. With this committee, Mr. Stanton and perhaps other members of the cabinet continued in confidential relation and cooperation. This has been characterized as disrespect and treachery to their chief, but in the face of Mr. Buchanan's repeated neglect and avowed impotence to resist open insurrection, the act seems laudable. Thus organized and informed, the Howard Committee became a committee of safety and observation, quite as much as of investigation. Its labors took a wide range, and after the lapse of some weeks, it submitted five different reports. A majority of its members recommended one, a bill to call forth the whole militia to defend and recover forts and other government property, two, a bill to close insurrectionary ports, three, a resolution to censure Secretary Tusi for having precipitately accepted resignations of Navy officers, the report also strongly criticizing his failure to call home the Navy to put down insurrection. Four, a resolution declaring the president had no power to negotiate with the rebel commissioners. The report declaring that with full knowledge that the authority of the government has been set at defiance, its dignity insulted and its flag dishonored, he yet negotiates with treason and commits the government to a partial recognition of the revolutionary movement for its destruction. A final report by the chairman also ably refutes the president's theories concerning secession, declaring, nor can there be any heed given to any one of the false and deceitful issues attempted to be raised, such as coercing a state, making war upon a state. All these pleas are 
fallacious, deceitful, and false, if not traitorous. Towards the end of January, the committee had, by an additional resolution, been directed to investigate the rumored plot to seize the Capitol. After examining many in February 14 that they had found no substantial proof of such a combination, though the project had been frequently discussed, this investigation and report had a twofold effect. It quieted the apprehensions of the timid at the same time that it afforded a warning to mischief-makers that the authorities were alert and that such an enterprise would be extremely hazardous. Could the events of the next three months have been foreseen, the testimony elicited would have been more critically scanned and the witnesses more thoroughly examined. Though the plot against Washington and any intent to resist the inauguration of Mr. Lincoln were stoutly denied, there were ample admissions of the public uneasiness, of the widespread disaffection to the government, of the existence of a belief and hope in the speedy establishment of a southern confederacy, of significant talk in prominent quarters of buying the public buildings for its use, of military organizations in Baltimore and the country towns of Maryland, of caucuses to precipitate secession there, and of a determination to initiate it by such a pressure upon Governor Hicks of that state, hitherto firmly loyal, as would compel him to convene its legislature. In fact, the precise condition of things which bred the Baltimore riots in the following April is already clearly portrayed in this testimony taken in January. While the Howard Committee was yet pursuing its investigations, and as the day for counting the presidential vote approached, General Scott requested permission from the Secretary of War to bring several additional companies of regulars from Fort Monroe to be replaced by recruits. This would augment his regulars to some 700 men, which, with the police and the militia, he deemed sufficient for all contingencies. Before the day arrived, a confidential arrangement of signals was communicated to the officers, the regular troops being placed under command of Colonel Harvey Brown. General instructions were issued also in strict confidence and to officers alone. The militia were charged with the care of the various bridges of the Potomac. The regulars were already stationed at convenient points in the city, and minute orders were given. The several companies and detachments will have their arms and accoutrements so arranged that, by day or night, each man can at once seize his own. The harness and guns were to be ready for prompt service. In case of alarm, every man was to proceed instantly to a designated place. The artillery to their stables, the infantry to their parade grounds, while mounted messengers were ready to convey news to and orders from the general-in-chief. Happily, no alarm occurred. On the 13th of February, an unusually large and brilliant throng filled the galleries of the House of Representatives to witness the proceedings of the presidential count. Vice President Breckinridge, one of the defeated candidates, presided over the joint convention of the two houses. Senator Douglas, another, was on the floor and moved to dispense with certain tedious routine. The sealed returns of the electoral votes cast by the chosen colleges of the several states on the 5th of December, were opened and registered. The tellers officially declared the result already known, viz. that Lincoln had received 180 votes, Breckinridge 72, Bell 39, Douglas 12. Vice President Breckinridge thereupon announced that Abraham Lincoln of Illinois 
having received a majority of the whole number of electoral votes, is elected President of the United States for four years, commencing the 4th of March, 1861. Elsewhere, we have shown that Mr. Lincoln was the indisputable choice of the American people in the presidential election of 1860, for the reason that if the whole voting strength of the three opposing parties had been united upon a single candidate, Lincoln would nevertheless have been chosen with only a trifling diminution of his electoral majority. In the proceedings narrated above has been set forth the complementary fact that his election progressed through every stage of legal procedure, verification and attestation recognized and unchallenged, until at its close the principal opposing candidate himself presided over the final inquest and formality, and by official proclamation became the witness of Lincoln's complete constitutional and legal right to exercise the powers and duties of the presidential office. With the official count of the electoral votes thus safely and peacefully completed, the next point of possible danger was the inauguration. And Secretary Holt and General Scott wisely determined to keep all available troops in Washington in order that that public ceremonial might also be accomplished without disturbance and with its usual simple pageantry. To the secessionists, the presence of this slight military force had been from the first the occasion of angry objection. Here, sir, said to Jarnett in the House of Representatives on the 10th of January, inside of her, Virginia's own blue hills, inside of the tomb of Washington, is this ungrateful son, General Scott, planning his campaign and planting his batteries for her subjugation? I suggest, said Hindman on the day of the presidential count, that the same committee, the committee to wait on the president-elect, be directed to inform General Scott that there is no further need for his janissaries about the capital, the votes being counted and the result proclaimed. The next day, February 14, Mr. Branch, member of the Select Committee of Five, offered a resolution declaring the quartering of troops around the capital impolitic and offensive and that they ought to be removed. Mr. Burnett of Kentucky had, on February 11, offered an amendment asking the president the reasons that have induced him to assemble a large number of troops in this city and why they are kept here. The amendment passed the House and being sent to President Buchanan was by him referred to the Secretary of War. Mr. Holt replied on the 18th of February in a long and vigorous report to the president telling the plotters against the government more salutary truth about the secession movement than they had been accustomed to hear from the executive department. Its history is a history of surprises and treacheries and ruthless spoliations. The forts of the United States have been captured and garrisoned, and hostile flags unfurled upon their ramparts. Its arsenals have been seized, and the vast amount of public arms they contained appropriated to the use of the captors, while more than half a million of dollars found in the mint at New Orleans has been unscrupulously applied to replenish the coffers of Louisiana. Officers in command of revenue cutters of the United States have been prevailed on to violate their trust and surrender the property in their charge, and instead of being branded for their crimes, they and the vessels they betrayed have been cordially received into the service of the seceded states. These movements were attended by yet more discouraging indications of immorality. It was generally believed that this revolution was guided and urged on by men occupying the highest positions in the public service, and who, with the responsibilities of an oath 
to support the Constitution, still resting upon their consciences, did not hesitate secretly to plan and openly to labor for the dismemberment of the republic whose honors they enjoyed and upon whose treasury they were living. At what time the armed occupation of Washington City became a part of the revolutionary program is not certainly known. The earnest endeavors made by men known to be devoted to the revolution to hurry Virginia and Maryland out of the Union were regarded as preparatory steps for the subjugation of Washington. Superadded to these proofs were the oft-repeated declarations of men in high political positions here and who were known to have intimate affiliations with the revolution if indeed they did not hold its reins in their hand to the effect that Mr. Lincoln would not or should not be inaugurated at Washington. Impressed by these circumstances and considerations, I earnestly besought you to allow the concentration at this city of a sufficient military force to preserve the public peace from all the dangers that seemed to threaten it. To those, if such there be, who desire the destruction of the Republic, the presence of these troops is necessarily offensive. But those who sincerely love our institutions cannot fail to rejoice that by this timely precaution they have possibly escaped the deep dishonor which they must have suffered had the capital, like the forts and arsenals of the South, fallen into the hands of revolutionists who have found this great government weak only because in the exhaustless beneficence of its spirit it has refused to strike, even in its own defense, lest it should be the aggressor. But Mr. Buchanan's nerves were too weak for such a healthy response to Mr. Burnett's resolution, and though Mr. Holt on February 20 wrote him a private note asking that his report should be allowed to reach the country simply as the views entertained by the War Department, even this request was not granted by the timid president who substituted for it a very mild special message, the transmittal of which he delayed till Saturday, March 2, and Mr. Holt's report did not come to the public until specially called for by a House resolution of July 27, 1861. Meanwhile, Representative Daniel E. Sickles of New York had offered a resolution providing for celebrating Washington's birthday in the Hall of Representatives, which the House passed, after changing it by an amendment to recommend to the people of the United States to keep the 22nd of February as a national holiday. Secretary Holt and General Scott naturally took advantage of the occasion to make a military display, which they specially desired for its political influence, being determined to show plotting secessionists as much of the pomp and circumstance of war as their very slender resources and soldiers would allow. A grand parade of flying artillery, of infantry, of the Marine Corps, of every scrap and detachment in the city was therefore arranged. On the afternoon of the 21st, Secretary Holt issued the necessary orders, therefore, and having sent them to the National Intelligencer with injunctions to be properly published, left the department at an early hour and went to his dinner. Ex-President Tyler was at this time in Washington in attendance on the Peace Convention, of which we shall speak hereafter, and was making himself officious in spying out and thwarting military demonstrations in support of the government, and he now hurried to the executive mansion to protest against this parade. About eight o'clock that night, Secretary Holt was surprised to receive a visit from President Buchanan, who, after some casual talk, formally requested his Secretary of War to revoke the orders to the Federal troops to join in the following day's celebration. 
Holt expressed his unfeigned regret. However, said he, you are the commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, and your wishes in the matter must be obeyed. But I greatly fear that the notices have been printed, and that it would be impossible to recall them. Nevertheless, I will do all I can to that end. The revocation was duly communicated to the officers, but could not reach the public, for, as Holt explained, the notices had been printed, and on the morning of the 22nd the streets of Washington showed an unusual degree of activity. The feverish state of the public mind, the notice of the parade, and the prompt appearance on the streets of companies of the district militia, whose movements the President's order did not affect, drew out a large concourse of people. Secretary Holt was sitting at his desk in the War Department about 10 or 11 o'clock in the forenoon, conversing with the President, who had come to him on some business, when Mr. Sickles, the author of the House Resolution for the Observance of Washington's Birthday, brushing unceremoniously past the ushers, rushed into the room and said, Mr. President, there are 10,000 people out on the streets of Washington today to see the parade which was announced, and I have just heard that it has been countermanded, and the report is exciting great indignation. I came to ask whether it is true, and if so, whether the parade may not yet be carried out. The President, by this time, ashamed of what he had done, turned to Secretary Holt and said to him, Mr. Secretary, can't you get up this parade? Mr. Holt promised to try and hurried to General Scott with the new direction, who was, as might have been expected, also indignant. What can we do at this late hour? asked he. The officers have gone home, and the men are probably scattered. Well, said Holt, do the very best you can, and let us make all the display possible. In the afternoon, the parade, though diminished in portions, took place, the column marching past the executive mansion where Buchanan, Scott, Holt, and so much of the cabinet as still remained loyal, appeared and received the marching salute. An official record of the incident might have been lost to history had not Mr. Buchanan on the same day felt it necessary to write a formal note to Tyler, excusing himself for changing his mind and his orders and apologizing for having permitted the Army and Navy to carry the flag of the Union through the streets of the National Capitol on Washington's birthday. End of chapter 10.